Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Shalom again. My name is Peter Parkis. I'm with CJF Ministries, formerly the Christian Jew Foundation. We're an international gospel outreach to the Jewish people as well as to all who would listen. This morning, I want to share with you a very special presentation called The Messiah in the Passover. Now, if you ask some Jewish boys or girls who the hero of Passover is, after giving credit to the Lord, they'll certainly tell you Moses. And that's true, but it's not the whole truth. You see, if you ask some Jewish boys or girls who know the Messiah that same question, then they'll tell you Jesus. So perhaps you're wondering, what's Jesus got to do with Passover? Passover's Jewish. Well, so was Jesus. And not only did he celebrate Passover every year he dwelt among us on earth, He's clearly pictured in the message of Passover and the story of Passover itself. For the message of Passover is the promise of redemption. And the story of Passover is the story of our liberation from bondage. So this morning, as I explain this traditional Passover setting to you, it's my hope that you'll view it as more than just an explanation of a commemorative meal but that you'll view it as I view it, as an object lesson in the life and mission of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look closely because I think you'll see a picture of his death, resurrection, and the promise of his return. Turn with me in your Bibles to the 22nd chapter of Luke and begin verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be sacrificed. And he sent, that is Jesus, Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare us the Passover. Continuing at verse 13, they left and found things just as Jesus had told them, and so they prepared the Passover. Now, the first night of Passover begins a seven-day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And during this time, many Jewish people will eat nothing that has any leaven or yeast in it. Why no leaven or yeast? Well, throughout scripture, leaven is frequently used as a symbol of sin. In fact, you can use a small piece of leaven to ferment an entire portion of dough. It's the leaven that causes the dough to rise, to become puffed up, just as sin causes us to become puffed up in our own eyes. So during this time, you might eat no leaven as a way of saying you want to break the daily sin cycle in your life. That's why in some Jewish homes, six weeks prior to Passover, the house undergoes a complete spring cleaning. We'll remove all the cookies, cake, cereal, baking soda, Dunkin' Donuts, <laughs> anything that has any leaven in it. Now, this is usually the work of the woman of the house, but did you notice Luke says Jesus sent two men to prepare the Passover. 
Perhaps that's because in Judaism, it's the man who has standing before God, not just when it comes to prayer, but when it comes to ceremonial preparations as well. So if you think about it, it's the man that should be doing the cleaning during those six weeks. Wait a minute. There's got to be a loophole here somewhere. Ah, yes, I remember. The rabbis have come up with a terrific solution to the problem, and they explain it like this. True, the house is spotless because the woman has spent the last six weeks cleaning and removing every speck of leaven. Well, almost every speck. You see, she's taken a few crumbs and hidden them somewhere in the house, and it's up to the man to find them. So the night before Passover, the husband returns home and picks up some rather strange-looking cleaning tools. These include a napkin, a wooden spoon, and a feather. And he goes on what we call berichat chametz, the search for leaven. Now, where could those crumbs be? Anywhere. Down in the basement, up in the attic, behind the refrigerator, anywhere. But fortunately, she's been good enough to hide them in exactly the same place she did the year before. <laughs> and the year before that, and the year before that. So finally, the husband will discover the crumbs, and with a very steady hand, he sweeps the crumbs into the spoon with the feather. Ladies, this is what I call heavy house cleaning. <laughs> now, since the crumbs represent sin, the man isn't permitted to touch them. Instead, he wraps them in the napkin and takes them down to a large bonfire in the courtyard of the synagogue. All the men of the congregation have gathered there, and each throws his bundle of leaven into the flames. Then he returns home where he proudly proclaims, now I have purged my house of all leaven. But just to be certain, he adds, may all manner of leaven, which I have neither seen nor removed, be considered null and void as the dust of the earth. Amen. The house has been cleansed. The home is now ready for the Passover celebration. On Passover, the head of the household puts on special ceremonial garments, and that includes a white robe like this called the kittle. And in Jewish tradition, white is the color of royalty. Jewish men often cover their heads as a sign of respect before God. So tonight I'll be wearing the usual yarmulke or skullcap. Now, the Israelites were instructed to eat the Passover standing with their loins girded, sandals on their feet, staffs in their hand, ready to go at a moment's notice. But today, today we relax and recline on pillows. You see, only the free could recline at dinner, only the redeemed. So we've got royal robes and the symbol of a crown, because tonight the head of Passover is a king. And as a king, he guides his family through the traditional Passover Seder. Seder is a Hebrew word meaning order, because the Passover Seder follows a specific order of service. And that order is recorded in this book, which is called a Haggadah. A Haggadah, which means the telling. Well, I see everything's about ready. There's a customary greeting at Passover, that all who are hungry come and eat. Now, we didn't prepare a full sumptuous meal for you, but just the same. Come celebrate the Passover with me. 
Passover begins with the lighting of the candles. And this is the duty and honor of the woman of the house. After lighting the candles, she recites her traditional Hebrew prayer, which goes like this. Pesach. Okay, now you say it. Pesach, very good. What it means is, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us by his commandments and has commanded us to light the Passover candles. It's very fitting that a woman kindles these lights, for it reminds me that the Messiah, the light of the world, would come not from the seed of man, but from the seed of woman and by the will of God. As the prophet Isaiah foretold, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel, a light to light the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. Passover isn't just a meal, it's a banquet. And it isn't just a service, it's a celebration. And while a meal and a service might take one or two hours, the entire Passover celebration could take up to three or four hours. During this time, each adult will drink from his cup and refill it four times. The first cup is the Kiddush cup, or the cup of sanctification. Then the cup of plagues. And then comes the third cup, the cup of redemption. And this is actually the focal point of the entire evening. And finally, the fourth cup, the cup of halal, or the cup of praise. It is with the first cup, the cup of sanctification, that the head of the household offers a blessing for all the rest of the service to follow. Holding the kiddush cup aloft, he offers praise and thanks to God Almighty, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, pari Amen. The service has begun, and the youngest person present comes forward and asks the meaning of Passover. He or she recites the traditional four questions found in the Haggadah. They are chanted, and the first one goes like this. Ma Why is this night different? than all other nights. Those of us who know the story of Passover are obligated to respond. This is because of what the Lord did for me when he brought me out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, when he redeemed me with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Redemption is at the very heart of Passover. But Passover imparts more than just God's message of redemption. It imparts God's means of redemption through the sacrifice of a Passover lamb. The Israelites were instructed to take a spotless lamb, to roast it whole without breaking any of its bones, and to apply its blood to the doorposts of their homes. First to the top of the doorpost, the lintel, and then to the two side posts. Because of their obedience to God's command, and because of their faith in the effectiveness of his provision, the Israelites were spared the ravages of the 10th plague to befall the land of Egypt. 
But when the angel of death saw the blood on the doors, death was forced to pass over. That's where we get the name Passover. In Hebrew, Pesach, the holiday which commemorates the time when death passed over the homes of the Israelites because of the blood, the blood of the lamb, the Passover lamb. What a mighty act of redemption. But what a picture of an even greater redemption through the sacrifice of another Passover lamb, the Messiah, Jesus. For just as none of the bones of those lambs were broken, so none of Jesus' bones were broken in his death. And just as the Israelites had to apply in faith the blood of those lambs to the doorposts of their hearts, so each one of us must apply in faith the blood of the Messiah to the doorposts of our hearts. The child asks another question. Why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? We explain that the Israelites, in their haste to leave Egypt, had to take their bread with them while it was still flat. One of the items found on the Passover table is this one, called the matzotash. And in it are three layers of unleavened bread, each separated by some cloth. During the service, the head of the household will remove the middle layer, recite a blessing, and break it in two. He sets one half aside and gives the other half a special name, the Afi Komen. Try saying that with me, would you? Afi Komen. Great. You're not just going to be Hebrew scholars. You're going to be Greek scholars as well. Afikomen is a Greek word, and it means he who comes later. Well, that's precisely what happens. The Afikomen isn't eaten yet. Instead, it comes later. Instead, the head of the household wraps it in a, in a napkin in the white cloth, buries it. It is hidden from view. Now, no one else at the table knows where the Afikomen is hidden, but later on, one of the children will find it, or the service won't be concluded. The child asked two more questions. Why on this night do we eat bitter herbs, and why do we dip the sop in salt water? Let me explain by showing you this. This is a Seder plate, a Seder plate. And despite its appearance, it is not used for deviled eggs. Instead, a symbolic piece of food from the Passover table is set in each one of these compartments. And all of these symbols represent a part of the picture of redemption. The first item is carpus, which means greens. And you use parsley or lettuce. Now, the greens represent life. But before eating them, we dip them in salt water, which represents the tears of life. So by dipping, we are reminded that a life without redemption is a life immersed in tears. And this is chazeret, the root of the bitter herb. And you use an onion or a horseradish root. This symbol reminds us that the root of life is bitter, as it certainly was for the Israelites in Egypt. And this is maror, the bitter herb itself, freshly ground horseradish, better known as Jewish tristan. 
Now, we're supposed to eat a tablespoon full of horseradish. You know what happens when you eat a tablespoon full of horseradish. You cry. You have little choice in the matter. This is between the horseradish and your sinuses, and the horseradish usually wins. Like the chazeret, the maror reminds us of how bitter life is without redemption. Now, by way of contrast, we have the haroset. And this mixture represents the mortar that the Israelites used when they had to make bricks for Pharaoh. It's made up of chopped apples, raisins, honey, nuts, and it tastes delicious. So perhaps you're wondering, why is such a sweet mixture used to represent such bitter toil? Don't worry. The rabbis have a terrific explanation. They explain that even the bitterest of labor is sweetened by the promise of redemption. Amen? This is not an Easter egg. This is a Chagiga, a name given to the special temple sacrifices in Jerusalem. You roast it, and that turns it brown. Unfortunately, it's a token of grief to the Jewish people, grief over the destruction of the second temple. During the service, it is broken open, sliced, given to each person at the table, and dipped in salt water, which represents what? The tears of life, that's right. But you know, if you really think about it, it's not only a token of grief because it is also a symbol of new life. Now, the last item found on the Seder plate is this one called the Zoroa, and it's the shank bone of a lamb. Passover is known as the feast of the Passover lamb, but during Passover, no lamb is served. The lamb that used to be eaten at Passover were the temple sacrifices. But in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and so was the altar where the sacrifices were performed. So from that time to this day, no sacrifices are made, and so no lamb is served at Passover. Instead, the Zoroa, like the egg, the Hagiga, reminds us of sacrifices that are no longer offered. Now, the presence of these two elements, the egg and the shank bone, raises an interesting question. With no temple, with no altar, with no sacrifice, how is it possible to atone for our sins? For the law of Moses clearly states, I have given to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. With no sacrifice, how is redemption possible? With no lamb of God, how? Well, once nearly 2,000 years ago, there lived a Jewish man named Yochanan. You might know him better as John, John the Baptist. And while baptizing people in the River Jordan, his gaze fell upon the form of another Jewish man, Yeshua. You might know him better as Jesus. And he declared, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. That's how redemption, not through the sacrifice of Passover lambs, but through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, the Lamb of God. It is now time for the second cup, the cup of plagues. In Jewish tradition, a full cup represents complete joy. But in one sense, our joy is not complete. 
At this point in the service, we pour out some of the contents of this cup as we remember the plagues that were poured out upon the Egyptians. We express sorrow over their loss and mourn over their destruction. There's an important lesson in this cup. Pharaoh defied the will of God. He was repeatedly told what God wanted him to do, and yet his heart was hardened, and he said, no, I refuse, I will not. As a result, he brought death and destruction, not only upon his land, but into his household as well. His son died because of his hardness of heart. How often do we choose our own desires over God's direction? How often do we know God's will for our lives, and yet how often do we say, no, I refuse, I will not? Let me give you a little piece of Jewish advice. If God is telling you to do something, do it. But as I've said, Passover is a night of rejoicing, a time of thanksgiving, and a day to praise God. And I can praise God not only because the angel of death passed over the homes of the Israelites, and not only because the Lord redeemed them out of the land of Egypt, but because I have been redeemed from an even greater bondage through my faith in the Messiah of Israel, the Messiah Jesus. For it is through him that I have passed over from death unto life. At this point in the service, the meal is served, and since we didn't bring a sumptuous meal, you're going to have to wait until after the service, but I'll tell you what we had to eat. You've had an appetizer of matzo ball soup. That's chicken soup with uh, matzo balls made out, of the, made out of the matzo, dumplings made out of the matzo. You had um, chopped liver, uh, gefilte fish. Your main course was either chicken or beef. Remember, no... No lamb, that's right. Now you've had something sweet for dessert, you've had coffee or tea, you're ready to move on, but the service can't proceed just yet because something is missing. Earlier something was broken, buried, and now needs to be brought back. Who knows what it is? The afikoman, very good. All the children will search for the afikoman. Only one will discover where it's been hidden. Once it is found, it is returned to the head of the household and broken again. Each person at the table receives a piece of the afikoman about the size of an olive. This olive-sized piece is taken along with the third cup, the cup of redemption. Does this sound familiar? Well, it should, for this is the origin of our communion service. But not only that, consider this. Where else can we find a clearer picture of our Messiah than in this custom concerning the Afikoman, which is broken, buried, and then brought back? Even the matzah, which is unleavened, a symbol of a sinless nature, speaks of Jesus. Specific regulations have been handed down that it might be found suitable for use. In the first place, it must be striped. Well, Jesus was striped, as the prophet Isaiah foretold, and with his stripes, we are healed. In the second place, it must also be pierced. 
Well, Jesus was pierced. As the prophet Zechariah foretold, they shall look unto me whom they have pierced. But I can see our Messiah not only in the Afikomen, but in the matzah as well. You remember the pouch containing the three layers of matzah from which the Afikomen is drawn? Well, there's quite a bit of disagreement among the rabbis concerning this, the meaning of this pouch, this mysterious three-in-one. Now, some say that the matzah represents the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? Still, others teach that the three matzahs represent the three divisions of worship in the ancient Israelite kingdom, the priests, the Levites, and the people of Israel. But why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? It isn't known, and neither of these explanations gives a satisfactory answer. But why even search for explanations? Why not just accept the answer that's so clearly suggested by the very design of the matzatash itself? In it are three layers that form a unity, a triunity. A Hebrew word which means just such a unity is echad. And it brings to my mind the words of God given to us through Moses, who declared, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. But the word used here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But the word used for one is Echad, a unity. And at Passover, the head of the household removes the middle layer of this unity. It is made visible while the other two remain hidden from view. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those that trust on his name. Jewish people who know the Messiah know also that the unity of the Matzatash bears witness to the unity of one God revealed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Why is the middle matzah broken, buried, and then brought back? I think because Jesus was broken, buried, and then brought back. This is my body, which is broken for you, and for you, and for you, and for all of us. Do this in remembrance of me. It is now time for the third cup, the cup of redemption. The fruit of the vine is always red at Passover. The rabbis say to remind us of the precious blood of those first Passover lambs. Those lambs were sacrificed in order to redeem the Israelites, to buy them back from slavery and bondage to Pharaoh. In the same way, the sacrifice and blood of another Passover lamb, the Messiah Jesus, was made in order to redeem us, to buy us back from slavery and bondage to sin. It was concerning this cup, the cup taken after dinner, the cup of redemption which Jesus spoke. This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
the very new covenant promised to us by God through the prophet Jeremiah when he declared, Behold, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law within them, and upon their hearts will I write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The broken piece of Afikomen and the cup of redemption are taken together in remembrance of the body and blood of the Passover lamb. My Passover lamb is Jesus. Amen. It is now time for the fourth cup, the cup of Hallel or the cup of praise. There's a Hebrew word that all of you know, but I wonder if all of you know that it is Hebrew. The word is hallelujah, and it means praise the Lord. The first part of the word is hallel, which means praise, and this is the cup of praise. But there's one last cup, which I haven't told you about. This is the cup from which no one drinks. This is the cup of Elijah. In some Jewish homes at Passover, an entire place setting is left for the prophet Elijah. Why? Why this longing for the prophet Elijah? Well, it's recorded in the Hebrew prophet Malachi that before the Messiah comes, he will be preceded by the return of Elijah the prophet. That's why each year at Passover, a child goes to the front door opens it wide, hoping the prophet will accept the invitation, enter the home, and announce the coming of the Messiah. I know the prophet, the forerunner, has come. For when Jesus spoke of the prophet John the Baptist, he said with regards to him, to the people of Israel, if you care to accept it, meaning the kingdom, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. The prophet, the forerunner, has come, and praise God, so has the Messiah. And at that point, at this point, this concludes our presentation. Uh, if we have time for questions and answers, uh, what do you think? Okay, is there any questions anybody has? And maybe somebody has some answers. Not, nothing hard, okay? Uh, when you present this... Um, Talk loud. When you present this presentation and there's Jewish people there that aren't saved, what are their reactions? Well, usually they'll get a little upset. Um, sometimes they'll be amazed and be drawn closer to God and have a lot of questions. Uh, but some will harden their hearts but others will soften it. But either way, it's a dividing line between the open and the not so open. Thank you. Hi, brother. Hi. Uh, when you talked about the uh, uh, Elijah coming, yes. uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, mm -hmm. when Jesus spoke, wasn't it Moses and Elijah? Yes. 
Okay, so, you know, that was to show the disciples with him that Elijah had come and he was speaking with him, the Messiah was here. Yeah, but Elijah would precede the coming of the, the second coming of the Messiah. If Israel had accepted the kingdom that Jesus offered to them, then John the Baptist would have fulfilled that prophecy. I see. But we're still waiting for the prophet Elijah to come in the day of the Lord. That's yeah. what Malachi says. The day of the Lord, without exception throughout Scripture, is we know it as the tribulation. Yes. That seven-year period prophesied in Daniel chapter 9 of tumult and upheaval. So it says prior to the day of the Lord, prior to the day of uh, Messiah, Elijah will come. Look at Malachi. Peter, uh, the fifth cup that you talked about, the cup of Elijah, will we partake of that at the wedding feast? No. No. We no, it's made we don't up. Have, that's nothing anymore for us. It's made up. It's just a tradition. Okay, so I can close my door at home. But now. Elijah will return. What would you say? I'm sorry. I can close my door at home then. <laughs> I might show up. Depends on what you're having for dinner, Vinny. There you go. So in essence, what you're saying is before the tribulation, we will hear about Elijah. That's right. Malachi says, before the dreadful and terrible day of the Lord, I will send Elijah. Peter, I don't have a question. I just wanted to say thank you for a beautiful and heartfelt presentation. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Your question, in the book of Isaiah, in, uh, chapter 53, they talk about the coming of Jesus Christ. Many Jews disagree with that, and, uh, and they claim that it's, it's uh, the God who has not, uh, who has not arrived yet. Uh, who, who what? A lot of Jews uh, have a disagreement on Isaiah, Isaiah 53. Yes. Yes. And, and, and they're, they're saying that's not, that's not Jesus Christ. That's something else. Well, the, uh, the pat answer is that the passage is talking about Israel suffering at the hands of the nations. And somehow Israel provides uh, atonement for the nations uh, being uh, a sacrificial suffering object. But that's ridiculous. Uh, if you look at the passage, and also that theory was invented in the 1300s, about a thousand years after Christ or so. The, the older rabbis always saw Isaiah 53 as messianic. And Isaiah says that he suffered for the stroke that was due to my people. And that's Israel and that's Jesus. It's Thank an individual. The, uh, if you look at the prior chapters, the servant of the Lord is sometimes is Israel. But in Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord is an individual. And if you look at it closely, you'll see. You, you, talked, to, you talked about the temple destruction and... Um, Sacrifice was stopped at that point. 
how do the Jewish people rectify or reconcile redemption if they're not sacrificing? Right. Well, what happened after the temple was destroyed, a bunch of rabbis got together in a place called Yavne, and they got permission from the Roman Empire to for a study hall, and what they did was they reinvented a Judaism that could survive and persevere without the temple, without the sacrifice, also a Judaism that could refute these Jewish people and everybody else running around saying that Jesus is the Messiah. So rabbinic Judaism is intentionally um, designed to refute Christianity. And so the way to answer that is, like, like any other religion, through good deeds. Your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. There's nothing new under the sun. So they say you have to do good deeds. Uh oh. Yeah, I believe that uh, Daniel chapter nine yeah. predicts the exact time that the Messiah is supposed to arrive. That's right. And uh, it's at the end of, I believe, what's called the sixty-ninth week. Mm-hmm. And if you count it up, that should have happened a very long time ago. Now, right. how come Jews today believe that the Messiah hasn't yet come when the exact timing is already in Daniel chapter nine? Well, when you look at a Jewish translation of the book of Daniel, chapter 9, they insert commas, and it's not an easy chapter to deal with. It's a little confusing to begin with. Some scriptures, some portions are more difficult than others. God means and intends to be understood, and even a child can understand most of the Bible. But this particular portion is a little difficult. And what it clearly says, Daniel chapter 9, is that the Messiah had to come before the destruction of the temple. And the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. So uh, it's a great witnessing tool to the Jewish person. Uh, It's a little convoluted, though, the passage. Any more questions? Because I think we're going to have to end soon. Yes. So I grew up as, as a kid, I grew up like half Jewish, and I always wondered why like my grandma would use like a totally different microwave. So I think she's talking about the, uh, the a kosher, keeping kosher and having oh. two separate uh, oh, okay. appliances well, and all the separate Passover implements. Passover is, is even holier than the regular days. So uh, the Jewish person is not supposed to mix milk with meat. That's a tradition that is uh, built on the scriptures because it says twice in the Bible, you shall not see the calf in its mother's milk. So they invented this whole thing that you can't mix milk with meat just in case there's a little piece of meat and the milk you're drinking is from the mother. So to play it safe, they have two sets of dishes. And then for Passover, hey, we have to have another set of dishes. So it gets really elaborate. Yeah. One more. Um, is there um, a relation between the two witnesses spoken of in Revelation and the second coming of Elijah? No. No. Okay. That's my answer. Good, good questions. Thank you, Peter.
you've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.